Well, good morning again. Since being here in Riverton, I have uh, met many of you who are, are teachers. Now, how many educators do we have here? Could you raise your hand up high? Oh, I was right. There are quite a bunch, a bunch of educators in this church. Well, since you guys are educators, I have to ask you a question. For the first oh, more than 100 years in our country's history, up until the year 1790, of course, you know, this is before the revolution, you know, of, well, 1790 is afterwards, but um, the most important book, do you know what it was? Besides the Bible, the book that all the educators used to teach the students how to read. Do you know what it was called, anyone? The New England Primer. Primer. Yes, you know it. And the very first line in the very first book to teach our very first students in America, this is the first line. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. So for more than 100 years in this country, the first thing anyone learned in school was that line. In Adam's fall... We sinned all. And you want line two? It's ABC, by the way. Here's B. Thy life to mend, this book, attend. That's B. And it goes on from there. What's interesting is the very first concept that American school children were exposed to in their education was the topic of what's called original sin. In Adam's sin, we sinned all. Now, of course, uh, that's not what you're going to find in textbooks today. I'm quite certain of that. In fact, this idea of Adam's sin is pretty much divorced from our entire culture. It's not very commonly known by anybody, and yet it is very, very, very important. And in fact, it's the topic of the passage we're going to look at today in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. So if you would turn in your Bible there, we're going to look at this passage. And it's going to be a passage that is a little bit complicated, but not too much. It's going to talk about two atoms. The first Adam, and Adam, by the way, is just the word that means man or human being. That's what the word means originally. So when we think of Adam, we think of the name of a person, which of course it was, but it's just simply the word man or human being. So in the passage where we see the word Adam, you can just put human being, or if you want, you could put your own name in there because it's talking about us. It's going to talk about the first Adam, that's from Adam and Eve that Myron spoke about with the children, but the second Adam is Jesus. So we're going to have these two atoms. They brought something extremely significant to us as human beings. The first Adam is the father of all human beings, and unfortunately, he's also the father of sin. The second Adam, Jesus, is the father of salvation. And of course, he's the one after whom I named this sermon, One Good Man. And the whole, posse, the whole uh, thesis of this statement is the first Adam really messed things up royally, and we've all been participants in that. The second Adam, this one good man, 
has done for us as humanity something you can't even believe. It's so extraordinarily good. So the focus today is on these two atoms, the first atom and the second atom. Now, as we go through this passage, you will see that there are, there's a lot of repetition. There's certain words that are going to be re repeated. You're going to have the word one. The word one will be repeated 11 times. Over and over again, it's going to speak about one. It's going to speak about one, and then it's going to speak about many. The word many is going to be repeated a lot of times. And then it's going to say much more or overflow. What the, what the one did for us caused something to overflow. So we'll see that word a lot. And then, of course, the main topic of the passage that you will see over and over and over again is the word sin or trespass or disobedience. Now, here's a, a, a summary. So before I read the, the passage for you, just here's, here's a summary. This is not something I wrote. This is written by a man named Douglas Moo. He said this, All people, Paul teaches, stand in relationship to one of two men. I guess this is the ultimate patriarchy. We all stand in relationship to one of two men whose actions determine the eternal destiny of all who belong to them. Either one belongs to Adam and is under the sentence of death because of his sin or disobedience, or one belongs to Christ and is assured of eternal life because of his righteous acts or obedience. The actions of Adam and Christ then are similar in having an epochal significance. They apply to something far beyond themselves. But they are not equal in power. For Christ's act is able to completely overcome the effects of Adam's. The universal consequences of Adam's sin are the assumption of Paul's argument. He's going to assume that we all are participants in Adam's sin. The power of Christ's act to cancel those consequences is the goal. So the goal of this passage is to help us who are all by birth children of Adam to reach this goal that because of Christ's act, the, our, the consequences of our sin can be erased. That's the goal of the passage. And so our topic, as each week we're trying to address a different part of a Christian worldview, the topic today is what is our destiny? What is the destiny of a human being? As you know, if you ask that question of many people today, what's our destiny? Dirt. I mean, once you die, you go back to dirt. That's the destiny of human beings. If you have someone from more Eastern uh, cultures, they would say, well, the destiny is for your soul. Once the dirt, the material part of you is gone, your soul transmigrates into another soul. That's called reincarnation. Or if you're way down the road of reincarnation, you become absorbed into the cosmic nothingness. That's the goal, or the cosmic oneness. Well, the Bible says, no, our destiny, the intended destiny of us as human beings, is eternal life with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That is our destiny. That is our desired destiny. But the problem is, we're all children of Adam. 
So first of all, in the first number of verses, we're going to, Paul is going to introduce Adam. Now remember, uh, about a week ago in chapter 4, remember Paul introduced Abraham. Abraham is the father of faith. We have what are called today in our world, you can find all kinds of books, they call them the Abrahamic faiths. Those are Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. All of us regard Abraham as in some sense our father. And by the way, those three religions encompass more than 50% of the entire world's population, way over 3 billion people, who identify themselves as Christians or Jews or Muslims. So that's pretty important. He's a very important father. But today we're going to look at another father. This one, the father of sin. And this is Adam. These, are the, these verses are Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, and of course the therefore is referring to what came just before it. Um, what came just before this? Paul, Paul was um, saying that because of Jesus Christ, we have hope of eternal glory with God. But now he says, but therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and this death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, Death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. So, to make that rather simple and hopefully understandable, it says that sin entered this world through the sin of one person, Adam. And because of sin, God, who is holy and perfect, must judge sin. So God judged Adam's sin, and then as a result, he was condemned. But that condemnation then spread to all people because it says all of us, like Adam, have, been, have sinned. But though Adam broke a distinct law of God, the people between the time of Adam, and we don't know when that was, but we do know when the time of Moses was, about 1500 BC, from that time to the time of Moses, there was no explicit law. God had not said to people on earth, do this, don't do that, don't do this, do this. He hadn't done that. When Moses came, God gave us the Ten Commandments and 613 commandments. That's how many are in Moses' law. They've counted every one of them. 613. So then, after the time of Moses, for the Jewish people, as you read all of these commands, you knew where you stood. And good luck trying to keep 613. We can't even keep the 10. We can't keep the 2. We can't keep any, to be quite honest. But you see, what about from the time of Adam to the time of Moses? There was no Mosaic law. God had not given his 613 commandments yet. So are those people, do they get a free pass? No. How do we know they didn't get a free pass? Because they died. They all died, every one of them, except for maybe Enoch. Everyone died. So, though there was not the explicit law of God, 
the people between Adam and Moses all died. So that means there was a law written in the cosmos, in the natural law, in the human heart, in human conscience that condemned us. And as a result, we, we, all, we all died. That's what the Bible says. Now, this passage, as you, I hope you can uh, realize very quickly, um, raises a bunch of questions. If I had to summarize it again, I'd say this way. Through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world. And sin brought death, and death spread to all of Adam's descendants, because all people, like Adam, sin. Now, um, there are a few important questions we have to address. The first question is this. All of you have probably read the Bible, and you're all probably familiar with the story of Adam and Eve. So here's my question. Who sinned first, Adam or Eve? Oh, you're asleep. Come on, come on. Or you're scared. I think you're scared. You don't want to make a fool of yourself. So who sinned first? Okay. That's what everyone says. Eve. Now, the problem is, did you notice the passage? Where's Eve in this passage? Did you find her there? Can you, can, can you find Eve? She's not there. It's Adam that gets blamed, but when you read the story in Genesis chapter 3, who sinned first? Eve. She's the one who ate the, the apple or whatever it was. Um, so we think, and throughout, throughout history, many people blame Eve. This is Genesis chapter 3, 6. When the woman saw that the fruit was so, she took it and ate. This is in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, and then this is 1 Timothy chapter 2, and Adam was not the one deceived, but it was the woman who was deceived. So why is in fact blamed on Adam when in fact it was Eve who sinned first? It's a good question, don't you think? Well, if you look carefully at the text of Scripture, I don't think Eve was the first one who sinned. And here's why. It depends on your, your definition of sin. Remember when the text of Scripture, if you read it, it said Eve saw that the fruit was good to eat and was desirable to make her wise, so she took some and ate it, and the next line, and gave it to her husband who was? Who was? With her. So where was Adam during this entire temptation scheme of the evil one? Where is Adam? He's right there. What is he doing? What's he doing? Nothing. Now, remember the story. It's extremely important. To whom did God give the command not to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? To whom did God give that command? Where was Eve? She did not exist. She did not exist when God gave that command to Eve. I mean to Adam, rather. And so now, Satan, the brilliant accuser, tempter, he doesn't go after the one to whom God gave the command. He goes after Eve, who never heard the command of God, except maybe from Adam, and he probably messed it up. 
Well, we know he messed it up because what she quotes it, she quotes it wrong. So we know he messed it up. So if you regard sin as what you do wrong, you're about 10% right. But if you look at the Holy Scriptures and real life, the vast majority of sins are not the things we do wrong, but they're the right things we should have done that we never did. The first ones we call sins of commission, things we do wrong. The second ones we call sins of omission, right things that we never do. And I, would just, I say that I think almost 90% of all sins are sins of omission. Right things we should have done, we should have said, we could have said, we could have done, but we never did. Why are those not sin? So the first sin is actually Adam. His wife is being seduced. His wife is being tempted. His wife is being verbally raped. And what is her husband doing? He's not in another room. He's not out of the house. He's not on a vacation. He's not hunting or fishing. He's sitting right in her presence. And he's going, uh, duh. And by the way, that sin has characterized us as males ever since. Our tendency is we withdraw. It's never stopped. Oh, by far the first and by far the greater sin is Adam, not Eve. He should have immediately stepped forward and said, hey, wait a minute, uh, tempter. This is my deal. She wasn't here. I know what God said. He said it to me. He didn't say it to her. I'll tell you what God said. I'll fight with you. I'll fight for her. No. Oh, have a nice day, Eve. I'll just watch. I'll watch as you're seduced by the tempter. And then like a dumb ox, she, she, he gives it to her. He, she gives it to him. And he says, okay, I'll eat it too. I think that's why Adam is blamed. Because his sin is before Eve's. And it's way greater than hers. The second question is, wait a minute. Adam's the one who messed up. Why do I get blamed for what he did? Why is Adam's sin passed on to me? Well, the main people who ask that question in the history of the world are called Americans. It's because Americans are really messed up and we don't know it. I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago, if you go to uh, Bella, one of the main sociologists, they say the dominant value of Americans is that we are radical ontological individualists. Our most important value as an American is that I am me. I have my rights, my privileges. It's all about me, my identity. Who am I? Well, what we don't realize as Americans is that is a really weird concept. And you do not find it elsewhere in the world. Because elsewhere in the world, throughout all of human history, nations and peoples have regarded themselves with what is called corporate solidarity. We're part of humanity. Not Americans. No, 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 no. It's all about me. Just me. I stand alone, and you better, you better protect my rights, not ours together. We don't have a concept of we as much as we have a concept of, of me. 
But that's not, that's certainly not biblical. And in fact, by the way, when you read many of Paul's letters, when you read them, all of the, almost all of the, the pronouns are plural. He's talking about us. But we read them, oh, he's talk, that's for me. That's, oh, that's for me. That's for me. Well, no, it's really for we. It's really for all of us. Almost all cultures of the world believe in corporate solidarity, and so does the Bible. There's something about us that we're part of a bigger whole. We're part of tribes. We're part of ethnic groups. We're part of something far, far bigger than you. Every one of us is both an individual and we're a member of the human race. And we have solidarity with the human race. Here's um, what the man I quoted before, Douglas Moo, said this. Corporate solidarity is the notion rooted in the Old Testament that held that the actions of certain individuals could have a representative character, being regarded as, in some sense, the actions of many other individuals at the same time. For Paul, Adam, like Christ, was a corporate figure whose sin could be regarded at the same time as the sin of all of his descendants. But what does an American say to that? It isn't fair. That isn't fair that I should get in trouble because of what Adam did. And here's how it's expressed, very American-ish. This is, you don't get more American than Ted Turner, the CNN founder, the owner of the Atlantic Braves, and this is what he said, quote, Half of my family was Catholic, and I've been born again six different times, once by Billy Graham. Just that statement alone shows his ignorance. You don't get born again by Billy Graham, by the way. Billy Graham hasn't born anyone again. Quote, this is back to Ted Turner. And the problem with Christianity is its underlying view that the world is a rotten place and we're born into sin. It's a real burden to go through life with the notion that this life is only spring training for the real major leagues of heaven. But what if this 70 years or so is, only, is the only heaven we're going to have? And what if, instead of waiting for a Savior, we look in the mirror and find that the only Savior we have is us? That's very, that's American. Go for it. Warren Wiersbe said this, skeptics sometimes ask, was it fair for God to condemn the whole world because of one man's disobedience? He writes, it was not only fair, but it was also wise and gracious. By condemning the human race through one man, Adam, God was then able to save the whole human race through one good man, Jesus. That's the plan. And it's a really good one. I remember hearing this story once, and I tried to find it on the internet. I couldn't, so I'm going to make it up again for you. But it goes something like this. The story is told about a gardener. And this gardener worked on a very, very wealthy man's estate. And the gardener was in the garden one day pulling weeds. And he was going, oh, curse Adam, curse Adam, when the owner of the estate walked by. And said, uh, what was that you said? Oh, I said, curse Adam. So why did you say that? He said, well, if it wasn't for Adam, I wouldn't have to pull all these weeds. 
And the, guy, and the owner of the estate said, oh, is that so? Well, would you mind joining me for dinner tonight at 6 o'clock in the mansion? And the gardener said, whoa, yes, I'd be glad to do that. He had never been invited before. So promptly at 6 o'clock, he, he went into the mansion, this enormous mansion. He was met by a butler at the front door. The butler ushered him into the, the dining room, this enormous room with this huge table set with all this magnificent food. And the butler said, uh, please, pardon the, the, the estate owner's um, tardiness, but he won't be here quite yet. But he'll be here shortly. He wants you to enjoy the room, but um, please don't lift any of the covers on any of the plates until he comes. We don't want the fool to get cold. And, of course, the butler left. And the gardener's looking around and everything's so beautiful smells so good and he's so curious and there's this enormous pot on the middle of the table and and his curiosity gets the better of him and he lifts it up and poof, fly, um, feathers fly all over the table at that moment the estate owner walks in and says oh curse adam <laughs> see that's what we do we want to blame adam for sin and real not realizing Come on, be honest. We do the same. Not only would we do the same thing, we do do the same thing all the time. No, and, and that is our basic tendency is we as human beings love to shift the blame to someone outside of ourselves. In fact, that is probably the cardinal sin, exactly what Adam and Eve did. When God confronted, confronted Adam, Adam said, well, you know, I wouldn't have done this if you hadn't made this woman for me. He's blaming God for his sin. I mean, that's really ridiculous, but that's how ridiculous we are. In our culture, woo, are we messed up royally. We found so many people outside of ourselves we can blame, and that's the great problem. The great problem is once you can find people outside yourself that you can blame for your problems, not only are you a big fat liar, but the problem is it moves you away from God's grace. That's the bigger problem. Because you are not a recipient for God's grace until you realize you need it. And we need it. Why? Because we're the children of Adam. But, now we turn to the one good man. Paul turns from the devastation that was wrought by Adam's sin to the grace gift that was offered by Jesus. Here's verses 15 to 17. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So you picked up that one pretty easily. There's a contrast. He's contrasting the trespass, Adam's sin, and the gift, Christ's gift. Adam's sin, his trespass, one man's sin, 
brought judgment, condemnation, many died, and death reigned. That's what it brought. It's a bad, bad progression. One sin brought God's judgment, condemnation, the death of many, in fact, the death of everybody, and now sin reigned. Contrast that with what Jesus did. Here you didn't have one man's sin, but you had one man's gift, Christ's gift on the cross, enabled grace to overflow to many. Many who? Many who had committed trespasses. Many trespassers. Not one sin, but all of the incredible amount of sin that we accumulate. That brought justification and then a new reign. Not the reign of death, but the reign of righteousness. Wow. That is quite, quite a contrast. Well, who is this one good man? Well, the Bible tells us this one good man, John, his Jesus' best friend, tells us this one good man was from eternity past. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. This one good man, his origins are from eternity past, and he is God. Well, then it tells us later, John tells us, this one, this word of God came and put on flesh like us and lived among us, and we mistreated him horribly, eventually killing him, but his death was the atoning sacrifice for our sin. And then to demonstrate the power of, that he had to, to forgive all sin, he rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and now he intercedes for us in heaven. That's this one good man. That's what he's done. One sinner and one without sin. One brought death. The other brought the gift of eternal life to anyone who would want it. A commentator wrote this. God's grace gift through Jesus Christ is greater than the damage done by Adam's sin. That one single misdeed, that one single misdeed should be answered by judgment this is perfectly understandable. A holy God must judge human sin. He has to. But that the accumulated sins and guilt of all the ages should be answered by God's free gift. This is the miracle of miracles beyond human comprehension. It is completely understandable that sin would bring judgment but it is beyond human understanding that our multitude of sins based on Christ's gift could bring eternal life. That is a miracle. And so he ends the passage with the results. Consequently, verse 18, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through, Christ, through righteousness in, to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, 
Jesus brought a gift. And then he says, what was the purpose of the law? You see, one of the major problems with religions in the world, all of which are variations on the same theme, except for Christianity, is your sin, you've got to limit your sin in order to try to get in to heaven with God. And Christianity says there's no way in the world that that will ever work because our sin, even one sin, condemns us because, before a holy God. And then people say, well, the answer is tell people the rules. And the Apostle Paul says over and over again in Romans and Galatians, no, 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 the rules make it worse. Because don't you realize the problem is not people pulling themselves up by the bootstraps or getting enough self-discipline that they follow the rules. The problem is human nature. Rules incite something inside our rebellious hearts which causes us to want to break the rules. Take prohibition. What did that do for America? Increased alcohol use. That's what it did. The very opposite of what it was intended to do. Why? We made an amendment. Why did it not work? Why did they have to rescind it? Because it made things worse. Why? And we still don't realize this. Law doesn't change human hearts. Only God changes human hearts. Law makes human hearts worse. That's what it does. That's what Paul says. So, as we conclude, the obvious question you should be asking is, so what? What difference does it make? Well, let me give you some so what's. First of all, from this text of Scripture, all of us, as children of Adam, should realize that we were born into a kingdom, into a realm of Satan. We don't like that. But these are the words of Jesus. Now it is time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. I will not speak to you with much longer because the prince of this world is coming. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Jesus says over and over and over again, this is not our father's world. This is Satan's world. This is his realm. We live in it. Why? We were born in it. And we were his citizens. We don't like that. And so we, the first thing we should do as people is we should acknowledge that. Lament it, repent from it, honestly face it. Honestly face the truth about ourselves. You see, if we understand that we're all children of Adam, we can empathize with all people in their sin because we understand sin. We don't judge people thinking that we're better than anyone else because we know that we're not. And we deplore self-righteousness because we know it doesn't work. That's what we should do as people, we're, we're sad about sin, but we don't think it that it's somebody else's problem and not our own. It is ours. So we don't need to rationalize our sin. We don't need to blame others for our sin. We don't need to seek to justify our sin. We don't need to send our, spend our lives probing the reasons for our sin. And of all people on, the wor- or on earth that should be honest with our sin, it should be us. Why? Because we have the Holy Spirit that shows it to us and we have a Savior. Be honest with our sin. Secondly, Jesus, by his 
his coming to our earth by a sinless life, by his atoning death, by his triumphant resurrection, by his, ascendant, his ascension into heaven, he has established an alternative kingdom and he invites us to join him. What does it take to join? Well, if the A is to acknowledge that we are Adam's children, the B is to believe that Christ has invited us into his kingdom. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, to, to whom do I belong? To which kingdom have I claimed my ultimate allegiance? And I hope every one of us, our ultimate allegiance is to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a much better kingdom. Much, 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 much better. So we have to make that choice. But we must be careful. As the Apostle Paul pointed out, we must be careful of what's called moralism because it creeps into our lives as Christians all the time. Even, even after we've become Christians, we think that the way that we become good in God's eyes is by following the rules. Unfortunately, the rules impact our human hearts and they're still rebellious and it doesn't work. One of the people I like to read, his name is Timothy Keller. I don't know if you've heard of Timothy Keller. Some of you have. Um, he wrote an article on his theory of preaching. I've never heard this from anyone. It's really weird. He said, this is what we do. He go, whatever passage of scripture he covers, he tries to explain what that passage means to the original audience and to us. And in that passage, you will find in every passage, this is what God wants us to do. And that's where most preaching ends. But that's only the first of his four points. Point number one is this what the passage wants you to do. Point number two, and this is the key, whatever this is, whatever it is, you can't do it. That's the essence of Christianity. The essence of Christianity is not this is what you do. The essence of Christianity is you can't do it. That's our key. Whatever it is, you can't do it. Point number three, there is one person who did. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. Point number four, follow him. We don't follow the rules. We follow Jesus. Follow him. The one good man. Let's pray. Oh, Father... We can't even begin to comprehend the, the, the brilliance of your plan. But it's not the plan that so grips our hearts. It's the person of Jesus. That he actually lived on this planet as we do. That he walked the same soil that we walk on. Subject to temptations just as we are. Who was abused and misused and misunderstood way more than any of us have been ultimately killed, that you would have sent your son to go through this kind of humiliation is unbelievable, especially for a bunch of renegades like ourselves. Such grace we can't even imagine. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. And we pray that it, through the power of your Holy Spirit that Jesus might take life inside of our lives this week in ways that would enable us little by little to resemble him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.